Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man said to his wife hide himself from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me with me gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, curse you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But I will put an enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voices of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like, <clears throat> like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and flaming swords that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we adore you because you are a good God and you have created a good world, a very good world. All of creation declares your praise. 
And Father, we confess that we are a people that rather than finding satisfaction in your glory and your love in fellowship with you, we have turned and loved ourselves, loved our own glory. And Father, the very thing that we have turned away from is the very thing we need. And we have wrought thorns and thistles and pain and suffering and weeping and crying. But Father, you have so loved us that you left your throne to rescue your people from the destruction of their own hands and their own heart. For you so loved the world that you gave. Self-sacrificially, Christ, to lay down his life, to redeem his people from their sin, to satisfy the law, and to be able to show mercy and grace to the transgressor. Father, I pray that you would open our ears to your word this morning, that we would see Christ in our need for him and go forth from here changed, overflowing with love and gratitude and joy to go and to tell our friends and family and neighbors of the good news of great joy, which is for all people. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You're probably thinking two things. A, why is he wearing a tie and why is he singing? Um, a, the tie is to, um, this is the debut of the new trio, uh, Kiv Tika. Me, Karis, and Aletheia were going on the road. Um, but I made the mistake probably a few months ago in saying, Faith, whatever you need uh, to support you, I- I'll do that. And um, never thought she would get laryngitis and Scott and Jenny would be out of town. And uh, she says, I need you to sing. And I'm like, you, you really can't be serious. But uh, I pray uh, and I'm thankful for all of your grace and mercy this morning. Uh, and uh, for doing that. But with that being said, over the course of the next few months, or next month, I should say, we will be looking at a sermon series for Advent called The Long-Awaited Savior. And it's the story of how a Savior came to rescue His people from their hopelessness and from their helplessness. And it is the story of Jesus that we know and that we love, but at this time of year, it can be very familiar to us. And I pray that as we have uh, unique things to uh, pull our hearts and that we would anchor ourselves to the story of good news of great joy that would be for all people. Yet the story that we're going to tell began long before the little town of Bethlehem. It began before the wise men saw a star. It began before the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. It began, began before the angel went to Mary in Nazareth and Zechariah in Jerusalem in the temple and to Joseph in a dream. The story was long before Herod, the jealous king, and Augustus, the proud emperor, reigned. It's before John the Baptist cried in the wilderness, and it's before Eleazar begat Mathen, and before Mathet begat Jacob, and before Jacob begat Joseph, and before Joseph was betrothed to Mary. God made a promise that a Savior would come. And over the the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at four of the many multitude of promises that a Savior would come. 
This morning we're looking at the story of a snake crusher, a story of a, a champion who would come to uh, destroy the serpent. Next week we will see the story of the promise of a nation blesser. All the nations of the world would be blessed through this promised one. Then we'll see the promise of an eternal king through the lineage and the throne of David. And then we'll see the promise of a peaceful kingdom where a child shall lead us. Each promise is a chapter in a bigger story, the biggest story, if you will, that is written by the loving hand of God. And this morning, as we look and settle in the first three chapters of, of Genesis, where the first promise of the Savior is hidden for all the world to see, we see uh, this story of this first few chapters, a good creation, a fatal choice, and a promised champion. A good creation, a fatal choice, and a promised champion. We start in the beginning, which is a really good place to start, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ten simple words that would uh, set the stage for the rest of Scripture. In these ten words, you see uh, the Creator and the created. You see the sovereign and the servants. You see the infinite and the finite. However, to be able to understand the story of Advent, we actually have to start before the beginning. Before the first creature crept, before the first fowl flew, before the first fish swam, before the first second ticked, before the first breath was breathed, before the first ray of light pierced the darkness, before anything was anything, the triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit was and is and is to come, existing in perfect love. In the beginning sets the boundaries of human history, but it does not limit the eternal God. For before the foundations of the earth, before all was set into motion, God was and God loved. God, the foundation, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the foundation of our understanding was that God is triune. Uh, God is Father. For all eternity, the Father has been loving and giving life and delighting in His eternal Son. Like a candle uh, gives out light, like a fountain that pours forth water. There has never been a time where the Father has not been pouring out His love, radiating His love for His Son. You can see this as, we, as Gil showed us this morning in Sunday school. Father, I desire, Jesus says, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me. Why? Because you loved me. When? Before the foundations of the earth. For all eternity, before creation, before all things, the Father was loving and begetting the Son. The nature of the Father is to shine forth His Son. We have God the Father before the foundations of the earth. We have God the Son. There was a never a time that God the Son did not exist 
For all eternity, He has radiated the glory of the Father, and He has returned that glory and that love to His Father. Jesus, again in the upper room in John 14, says, I do as the Father has commanded, as the Father has sent me, as the Father has sent me into the world, so that the world may know that I love the Father, that perpetual love and fellowship and bliss that comes from the Father and to the Son is returned to the Father. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. From eternity, the Father loves the Son and so excites the eternal love of the Son in return. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that stirs the love of the Father. It is the Spirit of, of, the, of, of God that, go, that stirs the love of the Son in response. The, through the Spirit, the Father loves and blesses and empowers the Son. And by the Spirit, the Son goes out from the Father and returns the Father's love. In this triune God, before the foundations of the earth that has always been and always will be, we see perfect love, perfect fellowship, perfect unity, and perfect harmony. Before creation, God, triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perfect unity, perfect love, perfect fellowship, perfect harmony, needed nothing. Because of the love that existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But the question is, if God didn't need anything, why did he create anything? Well, I believe the answer is found as we look and start through the pages of Genesis. Go to Genesis 1. That's not what I wanted. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 as we go through. Then God said... Let us, triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Why did God create the heavens and the earth. Because the love of the Father for the Son and the Spirit was so great that it overflowed into the world that it was created. Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, puts it this way. He says, The Father so enjoyed His fellowship with the Son that He wanted to have the goodness of it spread out and communicated and shared to others. God is a life-giving, love-giving, creative God that exists perfectly between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he created image bearers to be able to be brought into that fellowship. And he brought a, created a beautiful world that exists as a mirror of his glory and greatness everywhere we look. When we look up the majestic mountains that soar high above, when we look at the vastness of the ocean, the intricacies of the human body, the beauty of flowers and music and, and good literature and good food, it is all an expression of the glory and majesty and love of our triune God. Everywhere we look, 
As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her gospel story, Jesus Storybook Bible, God is declaring, I love you. The love that the Father has always enjoyed showering on His Son, now He rejoices to shower it on His children that He loves through the Son. The triune God is a God we can heartily enjoy in and through creation, all that we do. Psalm 19, that many of you know, when you see a beautiful sunset, when you see the first snow, when you see uh, the, the glories of creation, you say what? The heavens declare the glory of God and sky proclaims His handiwork. Day says today, pours out speech, and night to night reveals His knowledge. Michael Reeves, in the quote that Gil stole from me this morning in Sunday school, said the triune God is the love behind all love. He is the life behind all life. He is the music behind all music. He is the beauty behind all beauty. He is the joy behind all joy. All that you have that is good and beautiful and true that you enjoy in this world is a, a reflection of the goodness and the beauty and the truth of the triune God. Amen? Creation is a reflection of God's good glory. Ocean Park, we were made by God to partake in this beautiful love that existed always in eternity past between the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and to find satisfaction in returning that love and enjoying those good things by saying these are good because we have a good, creative, loving, majestic wonderful, and all the adjectives you can put in there, God, who is worthy of our praise and who loves us through his Son. We have a good creation. And I wish after Genesis chapter 2 we could stop there and just say, hey, that's it. But unfortunately, the rest of the story, the bad news of the gospel, before you get to the good news of the gospel, is that in Genesis chapter 3 that Jerry read for us, there is a fatal choice that changed everything. It took a good world that is still good, but it is no longer uh, uh, what it once was, like the Parthenon is, and the Colosseum is majestic and glorious, but it's now in ruins and it's still uh, stirs our wonder and our admiration. The world is not the way it once was because of a fatal choice that happened in Genesis chapter 3. We do admittedly live in a world that overflows with beauty and goodness and joy. Some of the few things that are our favorite things are raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper bags all tied up with string. Stop singing now. Sunrises and snowflakes and souffles and puppies and poetries and the smell of pot roast on a Sunday afternoon. We dance and we sing. We eat and we give thanks. We embrace and we love. Why? Because God's good creation is very good. And as the hymn writer says, he shines in all that's fair. That's why after church, you can go to cruisers and get their ranch and it's so good, you rub it on your body, you give praise to Jesus. It's that good. 
But for all the good that we have in creation, we realize there is not a good thing that it is not tainted with pain and sorrow. Because we live in a fallen world. The harmony of creation has been marred by hatred and pain and death. It pervades us and it overwhelms and it begins like weeds in a garden and thorns in a thicket begins to choke and to cause pain and remind us this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Why is that? Did God make a mistake? Did he only go a certain length? No. God created the world, and at the end of Genesis 1, it was very good. Notice in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of the tree of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam and Eve were created to live in harmonious relationships. Relationships, uh, a harmonious a relationship of love between God and his people, this, this vertical relationship. But we are also created to live in harmony on the horizontal relationship. And what sin has come done come and has injected this poison, this disease into these relationships because we were made to love God and to love each other and we do not love God as we should and we do not love our neighbor as we should. The sin of the garden was not just simple disobedience, eating the fruit. The sin of the garden was that their love, that they were designed to bring forth to God and to one another, that love was turned inward to themselves. The love that was to exist between trusting in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was now turned away. And as a result, they ate the fruit. Notice in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, food, and that it was what? A delight to the eyes. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. In the garden, Adam and Eve did not stop loving as they were designed, but for the first time, their love turned away from the internal source of life-giving, joy-infusing God to things that could never satisfy them. Notice in 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 5, Paul talks about this. For people will be lovers of self rather than what? Lovers of God. The, the eternal source of joy and satisfaction, a love that overflows in good things. Rather than loving God and the gifts He's given us, they have loved themselves. Lovers of money, not loving good, because God is the only source of all that is good and beautiful and true. Lovers of pleasure, as designed by self and of our sinful nature, rather than lovers of God, the only love that can satisfy us. Ocean Park, the disease of our first parents, Adam and Eve, has infected the entirety of our family tree. Like every generation before us, we have loved ourselves rather than loving God. 
We have sought our own glory rather than the glory of God. We have lived for our kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. Rather than delighting in the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that overflows into creation, these good things in fellowship with God, in fellowship with our neighbors, we have chosen to love ourselves. And just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The choice to love something other than God, something lesser than God, has reaped us a harvest of death. Without the life-giving union with God, we experience pain and destruction and heartache and death. The thorns and thistles of sin grow deep, and brought discord and acrimony, racism and corruption, hatred, neglect, perversion, greed, abuse, and pain. Not one of us are exempt from the poison of sin in our world. Though we are not as bad as we could be, though we are not as bad as we could be, none of us loves God as we should, because like Adam and Eve, our love rather than finding glory and satisfaction in God through Christ, we have loved ourselves. And the Scripture tells us God will not stand for His eternal Son to be dishonored and profaned. Isaiah 42, the prophet Isaiah declares that there is just one that God the Father has given the glory to His servant, His Son, whom He upholds, whom I chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And if you keep reading in Genesis chapter 42, you can't get away from the fact that this is Jesus who will come to deliver us from the kingdoms of this world that war against Uh, war against the kingdom of light and of God. And the Father will not stand idly back as His Son is profaned. I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my, uh, my glory, I give to no one, nor my praise to carved idols. From eternity past, the Father has freely and fully given His glory to His Son, but to no one other. And when we try to take that glory of that love and turn it to ourselves, He does not give it to angels or humans or to anything in creation. The glory of God is only given by the Father to the Son, nor will He idly watch by as His Son's glory is trampled. Therefore, we know that the judgment for our sin, for our self-love, our self-glory, our self-reliance is eternal separation outside of the favorable presence of God where His wrath is poured out because His eternal glory of His Son has been trampled by cosmic treason. Feel the weight of the truth of the Gospel. Those who are made in God's image, designed to flourish in fellowship with God, are now cast away from His glorious loving presence because they refuse to love God, the only source of life and love and truth. They could not stay. They had to go. You can see at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden to work the ground for which he was taken. He drove out the man to the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and flaming swords that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. You may think this is harsh. This is the glory of God. Because we cannot live eternally in this fallen state while we destroy ourselves. God said, you cannot be in the presence of my holiness and you cannot be here for eternity because you will destroy yourself. And he sent them away. And the curse and the heaviness was bitter and heartbreaking. The shame and the separation overwhelmed. Their sin prevented them from living in harmony, at peace with God, from loving Him as they ought. Now, by nature, they would always run and hide. Like an animal in the wild runs away from a human, so God must send them away. They could not live in His wonderful presence. But that wasn't the end. Before God sent them away, he made a promise. The promise of a long-awaited Savior. The promise of a champion. A champion who would bring them back to a good creation. Who would would reverse and take the consequences of uh, of their fateful choice. A promised champion who would come, and as we read with the children, who would cut the head off of the snake. See, that morning, or I don't know when it was, what time of day, that day in the garden, Satan had two objectives. The first objective was to turn the love of Adam and Eve away from God himself, the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. And his second objective was to turn their love and their worship to himself. Satan, when he pulled off his first objective, when Eve turned away from God and ate, and Adam as well, when he did that, he thought he had won by choosing to delight in the fruit over delight in the fellowship with God. Satan thought he had done it, but he did not account for one thing. The promises of God. Notice 3.14. And often as we read these, we forget about this verse and we gloss over this verse. The Lord God said to the serpent, not to Eve, not to Adam, he said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust of the day you shall uh, all the days of your life. Notice this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity means be hostile towards one another, to treat one another as enemies. The mercy of God was that the offspring of Adam and Eve would not be at peace with the minions and the the legions of demons that paid their allegiance to the serpent. They would never love Satan. There would always be animosity and hatred and enmity between sin and the image bearers of God. This was the grace of God. Enmity will not allow creation to find satisfaction in sin's sin's empty promises. Because, why? We can only find satisfaction in God alone. And the enmity would not allow Eve's offspring to find their satisfaction there, but there would be struggle. James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Prez in Philadelphia, says... 
we would like to go to hell happy. How many times have you said, well, I'll be in hell drinking beer with my buddies or doing whatever, playing golf. Well, I'll be happy. Enmity will not allow it. But there's always one aspect of grace that God does not allow that to happen. God makes sin miserable. Though for a season it may be pleasurable or may be falsely, sacrilely sweet, Enmity sets up antagonism between ourselves and, and Satan that modifies the hold of sin and makes it possible for us to hear God's loving voice even in our misery. misery. How many times have you prayed for someone that says, I pray that they would hit rock bottom and they would realize that the idols that they have turned to cannot satisfy? A dear friend says, until you are street hungry, You'll never find help. Enmity is God's grace that you, in your misery of sin, will turn to the only source of love and fellowship and satisfaction, and that is in the triune God. We long for love that he can only satisfy us, not the poison of self-love. We long to be home, to belong in fellowship with God, not wandering in isolation, hiding behind our screens and our doors. We, God made us for himself, St. Augustine says, and we are restless until we rest in him. Sin's empty promises will never be able to satisfy us or to give us rest. It will always lead us in the end and leave us hungry and bitter and wanting because of God's grace of enmity. Turn to Christ that you may live and love and find joy and find belonging. You will never find it apart from God in Christ. Now this continues. It's not just simply, you're not going to be happy. You'll see. Notice verse 14. Or, or the middle of 14. He shall bruise your head. Here, even the, before the sin was declared, we find the first promise of the gospel. Right in those little words. The declaration that the, servant, uh, the serpent would be defeated. This is not the end. There are times in our sorrow when our shame overwhelms us, when our wretchedness, when our sin is discovered, we feel like our world is falling down upon us. And I imagine Adam and Eve were feeling that way as they hid before the glorious, frightful holiness of God in the garden behind their wretched little fig leaves and those bushes. This was not the end of the story. In fact, the story was only beginning. Even while the forbidden fruit was still on the lips of Adam, the merciful God knew that he would raise up a champion who would uh, deal a mighty blow to the servant who had poisoned creation. A crushing blow that would be fatal and ultimately destroy the prince of darkness. Here is the first promise of the gospel, that a descendant of Eve would come and set his people free from the bondage of sin's tyranny and the hopelessness of sin. We sang about it this morning. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to what? Set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. 
God promised that sin's tyranny and bondage would not be permanent. Those things in creation that just make you sigh beside the grave of a loved one, beside the deathbed of a precious saint in the oncologist's office, when you get the call in the middle of the night, when you can't take those words back, when you feel your helplessness and the hopelessness because of sin, it's not the end of the story. It's from that moment the gospel rises from the ashes. A champion was coming that would deliver a haymaker to the jaw of the snake and that wretched servant whose lies and deceptions only brought pain and heartbreak and chaos to God's very good word. The promise of a champion ensures that the thorns and thistles of the, that plague the ground will be eradicated and pulled up. That pain and sorrow in an instant will be wiped away by his God's loving hand. That endless toil and struggle will one day be forgotten. Why? Because a champion would rise. A snake crusher who would decapitate that wretched servant. Yet the champion would not come as we expect. When we picture champions, we picture chiseled athletes or stone-faced warriors who defeat their enemies with strength and grit and determination. Our champions are strong and attractive and invincible. Yet from the very start, we see the champion that was promised by God is not like what we'd expect. Notice the, as it continues, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, the offspring of the woman, the promised champion, would be bruised by the serpent. That bitter struggle that would continue from generation after generation, the serpent would fight tooth and nail to destroy the offspring of the woman. All, he hated the woman from the beginning. He hated Adam. But what he did, so he waged war on them as possibly as he can. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Last book of the Bible. If, keep going right until you hit the index or the, the glossary. If you have a pew Bible, it's on 1038. If you're not real sure, you can go to the table of contents in the front, go to the very last book, Revelation, find the page number, and keep going until you get to chapter 12. It's one of my favorite stories, uh, uh, images in all of Scripture, and it's strange and it's odd. You have a, a dragon and a woman and a child being born. It's symbolic that the dragon is Satan. You have the woman is Israel, God's chosen people, descendants of Abraham who would come to bless all the world through their descendants. And then you have a child that is to be born to the woman, Israel. That child is Jesus Christ, the promised champion. Notice uh, at the beginning of one, and a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. It's, it's strange, it's odd, it's apocalyptic. 
with seven heads and ten horns, and his head saw seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars and angels, a third of the, of the angels in heaven, and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she, when she bore, he might devour it. It's, it's forceful. It's strong. It's a bit bizarre. Remember, the dragon is Satan, the servant who knows that an offspring will come from this woman. And this woman is, is, pictures Israel. And that child is Jesus Christ, the promised Savior. And he wants to destroy that child. And he sought from Pharaoh's bondage to Canaanite oppressions to foreign invaders. The people of God were under th um, constant threat of ex extinction from the enemies of God that are moved by the serpents. And when Christ was born, the serpent went into desperation note, knowing that this child has come. The serpent stirred the hearts of Herod to kill the newborns in, in, in uh, Israel, yet the Christ child escaped to Egypt. When Jesus was manifested as his baptism, Satan himself confronted him and, and hung and, and uh, put before him three temptations to divert this promised Savior, this champion who would come to destroy him, to divert him to do the, the, the will of Satan, but the promised Savior would not relent from the mission to redeem his people from their hopelessness and their helplessness. The servant stirred the hearts of the religious leaders who opposed Jesus. The servant stirred the people of Nazareth to throw him from a cliff. The servant stirred the waters of the Sea of Galilee to sink Jesus who slept in the boat. The servant captured the heart of Judas who betrayed him and sifted the heart of Peter who denied him. Yet through it all, he could not touch God's promised champion until the hour had come when the champion laid down his life on a Sabbath eve one Friday. It was on a hill far away where an old rugged cross stood, where the serpent was able to coil and strike that elusive champion. He struck with perfect venomous uh, intent and perfect accuracy, and that those fangs some, sunk deep into the heel of the champion, and he thought he had won. Because the champion fell, and he closed his eyes, and he gave up his spirit. And all the demons in hell rejoiced. However, as the champion took his final breath, he uttered three final victorious words. It is finished. Three words that struck the serpent's head with lethal force. Gil against all my verse. Uh, then this Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame they thought they had him. They thought they had the champion by triumphing over them in him, uh, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood upon us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
At the cross, the serpent was defeated and he never saw it coming. He knew that the holy character of God demanded that sin be punished. And he reasoned that if you could get the man and the woman to sin, which he did when he turned their love away from God, the wrath of God would come down on them and destroy them. But God's good design for creation would not be thwarted. Satan never accounted for the cross. The place where both God could be just and he could be the justifier. The place where he could punish sin and he could show mercy. Satan failed to see how Jesus, the long-awaited promised champion, the snake crusher, would take the place of sinners and bear their punishment and had his own and, and break Satan's power to pieces in shame. Satan could not foresee the cross. He could not see the power of cross that we will sing this, the power of cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Satan thought what he had won when his fangs sumped into the heel of the promised Savior at Calvary, but the, certain, the serp, uh, serpent had been outsmarted. Though Satan was the most intellectual being ever created, he was foolish that he could think that he could outsmart the Almighty and to outthink, or outthink the all-wise and overpower the Almighty God. The blow to Christ that was supposed to grant Satan victory was the blow that sealed his slow and painful descent into hell and defeat. Ocean Park, this is why at Advent... We don't preach a little eight-pound baby in a manger. We preach Christ crucified. Because the first step in the mission was to come to earth, the Word made flesh, but thank God He didn't stay little. But He grew in wisdom and, and, and favor with God and man, and He laid down His life to redeem us from our sins. At the cross, the mission of salvation was accomplished by the promised champion. Three days later, at the empty tomb, victory was declared. All authority has begun to me because I arose. I am who I said I was, and I did who I said I did. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go back to Revelation chapter 12, page 1034 if you closed it. Verse 11 and verse 12, or verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is still accusing us, lying, saying to God, They're not worthy. And he's right. But we belong to Jesus who is worthy and gives us His righteousness and took our sin upon Him. And they have, in verse 11, they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives un unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short like Hitler, who was defeated on D-Day at Normandy, who still fought desperately. Satan still battles. But God's victory has already been accomplished, and the serpent has already been defeated. The question is, who now do you trust? Whose kingdom do you belong to? 
Do you belong to the kingdom of darkness that promises you self-fulfillment and self-joy and, and, and self, uh, all of yourself and can't produce on any of its promises? Or do you trust the kingdom of light where the perfect love of the Father for the Son through the Spirit is poured out on all who come into that fellowship by faith because of the promised snake crusher of God? Have you... How you answer that question will determine how you view the child in the manger. Good Christian fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spears shall pierce him through the cross he bore for me, for you. Ocean Park, the promised Savior has come. His name is Jesus. He died to set you free and lives that you may have fullness of joy in the fellowship and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for all who await his second coming, his second advent, when he will take his people home, I pray that you will trust him today.